0: The uh, standard deviation of IQ, it's the difference between a person of average intelligence and someone who's borderline unable to operate at the the normal human uh, level. So we could
1: say if you live on the verge of financial trauma, your circumstances are going to make you stupid.
0: That's right. What's up, boss?
1: This is Abraham's Wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical
0: boss. Buenos dias, Stephen. Hello. Mark, how are you today? Good. I'm, I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt today because it just... It's a rainy day here in Utah, oh. which is very rare. We don't get many rainy days. Okay. So it felt it felt like a time to put on a Hawaiian shirt and brighten the room up.
1: Lifts your spirits a little bit. Also makes you feel like you're in the middle of a rainforest because the because the, the rains are coming down around you. You know, we ended off last time talking about the national BA. And in the national BA, um my hometown Pacers are now out of... They're out of it. They're not part of the story anymore. Oh, the NBA. Yes. Yes. It took me a minute there. Yeah, yeah. Um, our little Mavs begin there, we hope, a uh, long run tomorrow as of this, this recording. So they should have a couple of wins under their belts by the time this is published. That'd be nice. Um, Let's hope so. But what we failed to mention last week in talking about the National BA, it's really the most important playoffs that happen, our Fantasy League.
0: Oh, that! I haven't looked at our Fantasy League in about four weeks. All of my players broke femurs and things, and <laughs> I'm done.
1: Well, that would explain why the, 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 last, the last matchup of the season was me against you. So that would explain the way that you fared at the end, which was not well.
0: I handled you handily. So well, I went to just check and see what happened, and it tells me you're not even logged in anymore. So <laughs> that might tell you. I don't want to take anything away from your victory. Uh-huh. Um, okay, but you might have not been really playing a, a human.
1: Oh, okay, all right, all right.
0: So be it. Oh well. What else is happening in your world? Um, I, I'm in one of those. <laughs> Many seasons of imbalance right now. I've been working quite a bit. Yes, um, we we just hired a new household employee. The f- first time we've had to do that in about five years, so that was a little bit of a scramble for the parrot family. Was interviewing and finding a person that would be able to help us with taking care of kids and running errands and some of the the just to do lists on uh, around the house. But we feel very grateful that we think we found a great fit. Um, Can
1: you give us 30 seconds on how you went through that? Because that might be helpful for people.
0: Yeah, I have been very... What were you looking for? I've been very lucky that I've never had to (coughs) turn to the open kind of market when it comes time to hire somebody. Um, Yeah. We've always been able to throw up a few social media posts and put the word out and have lots of candidates. So that's great. We um ideally we're looking for somebody who um would be able to help us on pretty much a full-time basis throughout the summer and we're going to go to a different rhythm in the school year and kind of see how it goes of my wife and I sort of trying to work our work schedules so that we're around more in the after school times. Oh, that's great. Um And so, but we wanted somebody who was interested in sticking around with our family for longer than just a summer gig. So that kind of narrowed us down. Um, We had a few candidates that had done limited engagements for families that we trust. So that felt like an interview in and of itself if they've worked for one of our friends for a few months. And we ended up with some great people to talk to and really just... (laughs) I like to ask questions like, all right, if I didn't give you any guidance and just said, you've got the kids for an afternoon, tell me what you're doing with them. Um, and the answer to that question ended up being really uh, revealing of what type of person this was. So hmm. we're really interested in our kids being um, forced to be bored sometimes, being outside in in the mountains we live I'm looking at snow-capped mountains right now, and I, it's funny, a lot of kids that grow up in Salt Lake City don't ever go to the mountains. Uh, hmm. It's sort of something I've realized that people who grow up here are usually not the the mountain people. It's Those are the people who move here. So we wanted our kids to kind of be experiencing all the good nature stuff that's around us, and... We really found a lot of great Jesus-loving women that were people we felt like could do a great job of taking care of our kids, help us with the way we want to run our household, be of a like mind with us when it comes to the rhythms that we observe, and also, this isn't a must, but it's a bonus if it's somebody that we might even be able to uh, disciple uh, as they operate inside of our home, so... That's kind of how I approached it, and then the answer was pretty clear. Um, so I don't know that I have great great wisdom on how to narrow it down or well, what to do if you don't get a big haul in your initial uh, call for resumes. Well,
1: I think what you've already said is really helpful, which is exploit your networks. That's the best. That's the best way to find people that you can trust is your networks, and then just for you to call out that you, you want someone who can do domestic stuff, whose personality meshes with your family and who loves the Lord. Um, how, how much administrative, uh, burden do you, do you put on your helper?
0: I think that depends on the season. Uh, like I said, I'm actually around most of the day. Um, most of my clients aren't in Utah, so I'm often working from the home. So there might be times where I'm with the kids and I say, Hey, can you go do X, Y, and Z for me? Yeah. Um it's kind of there's definitely people who just would say I'm not interested in going to the store or folding laundry. And that's fine. I totally think it's a legit to say I'm that's not what I want to do, but we're looking for somebody who goes, I'm I'm happy I'm to up help for them, it, however. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So, that's well, that's what I got on that.
1: Can you can you tell us any good summer plans you've got you've got? It's kind of the oh, point pl- it's kind of the season of finalizing
0: one's summer plans. Well, you and I are gonna be spending a week in oh. Texas oh. next month. Oh. And our kids are gonna be going to the summer camp I went to as a kid. So oh. I'm kind of excited about that.
1: And where my wife worked as a college student. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep.
0: And we we have hopes to visit the Nashville area this summer um, yeah. as a family and as a podcast and as a business. So all three of those things. Yeah. Um, and I will also be spending a week in beautiful, uh, Estes Park, Colorado uh, this summer, trying to get together with some dads in, in the mastermind group I'm a part of, as well as, our guest Jeff Davenport from the Abraham's wallet podcast uh, is going to be producing a new project with us that we'll have details on maybe in a couple months.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, just to, just to sharpen that description a little bit. We like to meet with, uh, listeners and it's, it's not only fun for us, it's informative and educational for us to meet with people who listen to us. Um, it helps us uh, get our heads around what's actually happening with people, and you know who who it is that we're actually talking to. Sometimes we talk into the ether and imagine who who's who's listening to us, but it's good to meet people. So I'll just say that week is, I believe, the week of um, June seventeen to twenty five, somewhere around there. And um, if you are are anywhere in texas and are uh interested in talking to us we're gonna we're gonna make a pretty good loop around texas so if that's you and you might want some some face time with us let us know we'd love to we'd love to find you
0: yeah so once again i've rented a cadillac for us and we're going to be rambling across the texas highways like a couple of you know card players from good. The, the 50s
1: if I can just lasso some steer horns to the front of the Cadillac then we'll then we'll that really would be, be we'll be booking it.
0: That would be really great.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I was very excited to get into the topic of poverty and I think I'm going to go back and retitle that thing How to Hate Poverty. Um, because we've got to have a good firm hatred of po- of poverty biblically. Before we can uh, get our hands around it, I think, um, as I as I said last week, so we're going to continue to talk about poverty and what it looks like and how how we're supposed to walk out of it and then and then deal with you, you know, deal with some some problems if you are walking out of it. Um, But, Mark, you ran across something exciting and provocative and I think we're going to get the give the bulk of our time for you to unpack that. Well, I'll just hand it over to you, and you can tell us.
0: Yeah, I read this book that my wife read a year ago, and has been bugging me to read ever since. She's been saying, "Hey, this is really interesting. It's like, it's very much in the vein of Freakonomics. If you read that and enjoyed it, um, it's these two Princeton guys, uh, Sindhil Mulhan <laughs> All right, and Eldar Shafir, okay, so we got um, a couple of Asians is what you're saying? I don't know. Eldar looks not Asian, but I don't know. He could be These um, sound he's like a smart Mid- fella
1: middle eastern engineer brain brain guys,
0: yeah, could be. I don't know anything about that. They wrote this book called Scarcity, and it really goes into a lot of academic research in an interesting plain English way about what does having little do to humans and they don't really get to any solutions in this book, but I thought it would be interesting to hold up the academic work on what does poverty and scarcity look like against last week's episode, which was the biblical uh, descriptions of poverty and the admonitions on how we should respond to it. Because, there's a few things that they say that I'm gonna kind of get to at the very end that I go, well, this is directly what the Bible says not to do if you want to avoid poverty, um, and these guys, their conclusion is kind of, we found that this is what causes poverty mm. <laughs> it is not not living according to Scripture. I'm I would guess that we have listeners who fall all over the spectrum of how should we respond, either as believers or even as Americans. To poverty. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm going to present any conclusions along those lines today, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of what's the right policies or programs to pursue. Um, but I'm all for gathering data and looking at how this stuff plays out in the real world. And I think we can learn about the spiritual forces that underlie uh, poverty from all sorts of places. We don't just look at the Bible and say, plug our ears and make noise if, if there's interesting additional information coming from somewhere else, so.
1: That's exactly right. I I always love the use of the verse um, when the scripture tells us to look at the ant and learn, which we talk about, we, we talked about
0: last time and we're gonna talk about a lot more this time. That verse, that's the verse that I said like before we started recording, Hey, at the very end, I'm going to talk about this verse, and it's going to be my real power punch. No, no,
1: no, no. You can, you can, you can hold, you can use that for, for whatever purposes I'm going to make a completely separate point, which is I've heard that verse used to, to buttress the idea that the Bible itself tells you to go to extra biblical sources to get godly information, Right. It tells you to go look at an ant, and if you study an ant, you will learn something about the way God wants God has designed the world to work. So that's right. So if we could go to this book that these dudes whose names I can't pronounce um, wrote, and they tell us here's some empirical data about scarcity. We're not afraid of outside information whatsoever. We're very interested in outside information. I think the better information we have, the more we'll find that how the world really works underlines the scriptures, the truth of God. And if someone comes to a different conclusion, I'm not afraid of somebody coming to a different conclusion. I just want to hear the data that they've got. I'm, I'm very interested in it. Even Paul himself was very interested in the idea that there would be outside information that might contradict what he knew of God, and he wanted to hear it. And he would say things like, well, listen, if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, and he entertained the idea, what if, what if we were all nuts? What if this is wrong? If, if that's the case, we are all fools, and people who stop up their ears and don't want to hear what's happening around—they don't have that attitude. Well, I, I'm—I want truth personally, and I know that we can misconstrue scriptures. I've been around people my whole life who have done that. We don't want to misconstrue things. We we're open to what's happening out there in the world. We just have to know what the scriptures say that we, so we can have something to bounce it against. So when you say there are things in this book that are exciting because they're right down the line, then they might can come to a conclusion or two that is off. Well, great. Well, we can evaluate that and deal with it. So, anyways, just a little blurb there about us. Not we're not we're not the ostrich who buries its head in the sand. All right, go on, go on, go on with your book. Yeah, with your bad let's, self. Let's book. just
0: start with the the assertion that not all of the effects of of scarcity, if you will, are negative. So um, the, the the book kind of starts out with this study that they did where they gave a bunch of people an, an Angry Birds game. And they said, we wonder who will play better, those who have few birds to fire off and try to play the game with or those who have lots. It's a game where you kind of get to slingshot things across a screen and try to knock stuff down on the other end. Of course. And... Okay, well, I don't
1: know. Um, surely surely our listeners are aware of Angry Birds.
0: Yeah, that's my favorite thing to do on a plane while I'm listening to podcasts if I'm bored <laughs> is uh, play the Angry Birds. But uh, as you would expect, the people that had more birds got higher scores because they're just machine gunning birds over there, but they were far less accurate. And the book kind of goes through a whole bunch of Um, data to prove their point that focus is actually a positive effect of scarcity. Um, And I have experienced this personally. Uh, I've talked about poker on the podcast before, but I used to play a lot of poker. And it's definitely true that when you sit down at a new table, you're trying to figure everybody out. You've got a pile, maybe you've got $300 in front of you, and you think about every decision. You watch all the players, try to understand what's what. But if it goes well, you might have $700 in front of you after a few hours. And I have found it very difficult in this uh, new environment of plenty to play with the same caution, care, and alertness that I played with when I was thinking, well, if I make a couple bad decisions here, I could lose all my money very quickly. Um, It's not at all uncommon to go buy in for this amount look down and see three times that amount after a few hours and then go home with no money because you just got splashy. Um, so I've experienced it. That's kind of the, the positive impact of scarcity. But one of the big kind of things that the book shines a light on is that this focus often moves from positive to something they call tunneling. Um, and tunneling is when because of scarcity, uh, there's a problem that arises in someone's life and they tunnel in, you know, have tunnel vision on that problem and kind of block out everything else. This is a a way that we are created to function, to deal with extremely stressful and difficult times. Cause sometimes you need to focus on, you know, the saber tooth tiber that is chasing you and not worry about what you're going to have for dinner that night. But, uh, in environments where scarcity is common, tunneling is uh, uh, pretty pretty much always present. So poor people, when they're asked why they don't have health insurance, a lot of times the number one thing they'll say is because they can't afford it. But of course, the reality is the opposite is true. Um, somebody who's very wealthy can actually afford to get sick and not be totally busted by it. Somebody who is poor cannot afford to get sick or they're going to be completely sunk for the long haul by by that.
1: So tunneling is, is is losing your peripheral vision, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And so that's one of the the impacts that happens when this good thing about scarcity, which is that it helps you to focus on the one thing, uh crowds out all the other factors in decision making. Okay. So the book goes in. The book goes into Uh, quite a lot of detail on debt and a lot of the, one of the big signs of poverty is debt. Well, um, tunneling happens when, okay, I have an unexpected bill and we've talked about it on the podcast before. We know that half of Americans cannot come up with $2,000 in 30 days. Uh, So, A $2,500 car repair is a significant emergency for many Americans, if that's a vehicle they need to get to work. Uh, A lot of times, people will go out and borrow in order to cover that bill. And a lot of the borrowing that's available for such an emergency is lending done at an excessive interest rate. Uh, Now, somebody who could step back and not be tunneled in on that problem might say, you know what, I need to wake up an hour early and walk to the bus stop and save some money for the next two months. No matter what, even though that's going to be miserable and it's going to make my life super hard. Because if I take this loan, it's going to kick off a series of dominoes that will be almost impossible to stop. Mm. Um, And it's not that people in poverty are dumb, uh, that they can't think through that process. It's that there is a known effect that happens when a really big emergency that is stressful is put right in front of us we tend to say how do i solve this problem and the obvious quick answer is there's someone who will give me money and it will solve this problem and they don't need me to pay it back right away Mm. so that's kind of uh the first big insight about what does poverty look like um great you know, the the other another big thing that came out of this book is they talked about how scarcity taxes your bandwidth. Uh so I don't know if you've read about this in newspaper articles and things, but I'm often hearing about the effects of poverty on what a, a home feels like, children get impacted by this stuff even though they're not Uh, thinking about usually the bills that need to be paid. There's a tangible sense of a lot of background noise, usually whenever you see poverty in place. Um, And having background noise, whether that's actual noise, uh, there was an example in the book about they studied a school in New Jersey where there was some of the classrooms right next to train tracks and some of the classrooms far enough away that you couldn't hear when the trains went by. And the same students, the same student population, there was a humongous negative effect on the kids whose classrooms had a train go by every 30 minutes. Um, So just the background constant disruptions, that effect is also seen in people who are dealing with poverty because there is constantly uh, a little voice that comes in and starts saying, you've got all these problems, you need to fix them, they're coming after you. Um, and that, that background noise creates a bandwidth tax, um, is kind of how the authors described it. Um, and they gave a, they gave an IQ test at a mall to kind of prove this, this theory out that the bandwidth tax is not just distraction. It's actually related to, to financial, uh, questions for most people. They went to a mall and they asked People, how they would feel about a $300 unexpected car repair that had to be done. And they answered, oh, I would feel like this. Uh, and then they gave them a little IQ test. Everybody got the same IQ test and, and people performed about like they would have expected. They took another group of people in the same mall, different day, and asked them two questions. The first one was about their, their level of wealth. And the second one was, okay, now if, how would you feel about a $3,000 car repair? Keeping in mind that most Americans can handle a $300 car repair, but most Americans cannot handle a $3,000 repair. Yeah. And for the wealthy people, they performed exactly the same on the IQ test that followed that, bringing up the idea of a $3,000 car repair. But for the bottom half of wealthy people, um, the poorer people, they performed an entire standard deviation below in intelligence just by being asked to think about what you would feel like if wow. you could, became aware of a three thousand dollar expense. Um, it,
1: it was that it was that
0: disorienting to them to just consider that. Yeah, so it it's the, a standard deviation of IQ. They talked about this a bunch in the book, but. It's the difference between a person of average intelligence and someone who's borderline considered deficient, Jeez. like unable to operate at the, the normal human uh, level of day to day life. So it's a big difference. So and we could say that was
1: li- living in financial um, emergency mode. If you if you live in on on the verge of financial trauma, yeah your circumstances are going to make you stupid.
0: That's right. And I'll just give you a couple quick facts uh, that came out of the book. The effect of thinking about money on the poor is even more serious in terms of their performance on an IQ test than serious sleep deprivation defined as two nights in a row of less than four hours of wow. sleep. Wow. Um. Another thing they explored a lot in the book is that scarcity also significantly reduces self-control. So people facing scarcity are much more likely to choose an impulsive option mm-hmm. in a test. And that was true not just for financial scarcity. They, they talked a lot about dieters, people who are imposing restrictions on what they're allowed to eat. Mm-hmm. If they showed them pictures of cake and ice cream and then asked them to do an IQ test, they were distracted Uh, And we're not able to to complete the test at the same level. Wow. Um, So that's kind of an example of the bandwidth test and just uh, the bandwidth tax rather. Um, It's significant. If poverty is operating in the background of your life, Mm. it is going to drain your ability to perform. Um, So I thought that was interesting and it's, we could go a thousand different ways from a So how should we deal with this? Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to dispute that people who are dealing with poverty, um, again, that could be because they don't have enough money. It could be because they have no slack or no free time and they're constantly out of time. Um, They talked a lot about that having similar impact on somebody if they are always running behind because they don't have the time to do the things they would like to do. Yeah, That, That was kind of a form of poverty they discussed. Um, they are not going to be operating at full capacity.
1: Well, we would say, right, that, I mean, these researchers are looking at, at um, surface measurable scarcity and telling us here's what, here's what poverty does to people. Um, I'd be interested in what they're, I'd be interested in knowing why they even took, took on the project, why, why, they, why they're interested in the subject but for us i would just say we believe that that this uh poverty mindset can be present in you regardless of what your uh resources are and i mean when you talk about i mean this is a this is like a major thing that i'm very interested in is that that lack of self control impulsive thing um which can exist, that exists in CEOs, that exists in people with tons of money, that, ex- that exists in people who are just American. Um, it's not limited to Americans, but I certainly see it in, in people around me, and it's not connected to uh, how much money someone has. Maybe it's harder for somebody with financial scarcity, um, to get their, I don't know, to get their head around self-control. But, you know, this is one of the reasons I, I I teach that self-control is a major thing that we're to impart into our children in raising them is that they can not give into impulse that they can. uh, We don't, we don't word it this way, but they can live their life based on values that they understand internally
0: that uh, this is the way that I make decisions it was interesting I was doing I was with the, my guys group last night and somebody said we were we were discussing confession and what that can do for a group of men when they get together and somebody said a lot of the things that we're talking about um boil down to self-control and I think that might be the most unheralded of the fruits of the spirit we think love outward pouring of love joy kindness goodness all these things that are fruits of the spirit but then self-control it's kind of a weird one yeah um and so it's interesting kind of hearing you talk about how self-control relates to poverty that it's not it's not just some of us are are really great at self-control it's an actual fruit of the spirit yeah that's right Um, So the second half of kind of what they explored was, was around um, what they called slack. And we've talked about this in articles and podcasts we've done on budgeting, how we've talked about having some slush in your budget. um, What that, what that looks like. Even if you go to abrahamswallet.com and search slush, you'll find articles where we talk about how to think about slack or slush in your budget. Um, But I think that we know in our brains that everything, no matter how rich you are, when it comes to money, and the same would be true of how you spend your time, everything is a trade-off. So if I decide to buy a latte, um, that means I won't buy or spend or invest in something else. Um, And I might not feel that, but it's true. Um, I will either keep my money in cash in my account And now I have liquidity or I've decided to spend it on something so that everything's a trade-off. Those who are on a tight financial budget, though, will almost always engage in this type of trade-off thinking because they have to. Um, When there's an opportunity that comes their way, um, you know, if you have a lot of slack in the system and your buddy says, hey, it's NBA playoffs time and we could go get tickets, they're $130. If you've got a ton of slack in the system, you say, that sounds fun. Sure. Yeah. If you have no slack in the system, you think, well, if I want to do that, here's the things I will not do this month. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty obvious. I think that those who have less of of a resource are going to have to think that way. Um, but it's presence, the, the presence of slack, uh, kind of excess space, whether it's in a budget or in a calendar or whatever, means that there's smaller items that can fit into the gaps that don't force you to do this type of trade-off thinking. And the trade-off thinking, the more constricted resources become, gets more and more stressful. So it's not a big deal even for a single guy who's maybe making not a whole lot of money to think, well, I could eat ramen for three days and go to the playoff game. That might be fun. But it becomes a really big deal if you've already sucked the belt in to the point where you're barely scraping by and then you have a shock um, that Mm. you just say, okay, now somebody's not eating at all or we're going to cancel the health insurance now. Um, Those become extremely noisy for people who are dealing with poverty of any sort. Um, Slack also provides the luxury of not choosing. Uh, because you retain the option for later. So if you're on a super tight budget with $10 of slack per month and you really love craft beers that cost $10, you're very likely to, sort of the the data says, you're very likely to spend that $10 of slack in your budget on a craft beer if you're offered the chance to do it because you think, I have $10 extra, here's an opportunity to spend the $10 extra on Hmm. something I really like. You're actually way more likely to skip that splurge if you have $100 of slack in your budget because you know in your brain, I can choose to buy that later. Um, whereas the person who has very little uh, thinks, I need to buy that now because I have the $10 now and I should get the thing I like. You've described this, Stephen, with kind of watching your dad grow up in, a, in an environment of poverty where... You said a lot of people, when they get their hands on some money, they think, well, let's throw a party now because we might not have any money tomorrow. So um, talk about how that's played out.
1: This book should be a companion. It should be a twofer um, at the bookstore with the book that I have referred to in the past. Um, It was written by a researcher at the University of Houston, as a matter of fact, Um, and it's called A Framework for Understanding Poverty. In that book, it describes a person with a lifetime of poverty. Let's say $100 is found on the ground. Now, I'm not talking about just somebody who doesn't have any money that's short on dough. Um, I'm thinking of myself as a young man who... um, I didn't grow up in poverty. I don't think I had a... I I had a... I don't know. I hate to make these things sound like they're they're um, opposed to each other, but I had more of a, a middle class working mindset than the than the mindset described in a framework for understanding poverty. If I found a hundred dollars on the ground, I would have thought I can buy a used lawnmower with that, and I can start making money with the used lawnmower. And those are the kinds of things that I did with money. As a young man, well, somebody who is in a poverty mindset, they would find the hundred dollars. They would think, they think to themselves, the circumstances I'm in right now in the crummy house on in a bad neighborhood, I'll always have these circumstances. So what could I do in the short term that would be fun or alleviate some of the present misery I feel at this moment? That's right. If I could contrast that with what I just described about buying a used lawnmower, actually, if you buy a used lawnmower with a hundred found bucks, you're actually putting off your satisfaction even farther. You're saying, oh, I I could buy myself some toil with this money. And then on the other side of it, there might be some satisfaction. There might be some pleasure. Whereas somebody who has no hope of getting out of the circumstances, just think, just give me some pleasure immediately. So we would see that, um, my, my mother who, uh, some folks know from various episodes of the podcast, my mother has always run the books in my, in my household. One of the reasons is because she came from, she can't, she, they grew up in the same little country town, but my mother came from a well-to-do family in the country town. Her father owned the water works for the town. And and he was he was he had a car and they they were one of the first uh, first families to get a a nice radio in the house, etc. And so she has a much different approach to money, whereas my father, whenever he would give my mother actually gave my dad an allowance. My dad, he likes the feeling of I've got some money folded in my pants pocket and I like the feeling. My dad just likes the feeling of like Counting out dollars to the shopkeeper just loves that feeling of of spending money, and so my mom would make him allowance, knowing that that kind of thing that we're describing, it's in the old man. That old man is eighty two years old right now, and that thing is still in him, and that that feeling of buying short term pleasure, um, even if you have to mortgage the future to do it, that that is just that's part of the deal. That's part of this poverty thing
0: yeah there's a couple things that this brought to mind for me i i remember so when we think about slack and and money we all make stupid money decisions and probably i like to think that i made more stupid money decisions when i was younger than i make (laughs) now um but there was a time in college where i didn't have a whole lot of slack and i was at princeton and the all the blue-blooded kids would get together and sit uh, around in these, you know, burled walnut paneled rooms and uh, smoke pipes and act like we were, you know, old men, hot stuff. Yeah. Yes. And I did not come from poverty by any stretch. I came from a, a family that was doing great but I wasn't this wasn't my natural environment either yeah Uh, and I didn't have a lot of money of my own at the time Um, so I I had about a hundred bucks I think to my name Uh, and I thought I'm gonna go down to the tobacco store in town and get me one of these pipes uh, (laughs) because they had a little they had a little package for students to wanted to have a pipe and you could get a pipe and a bag of probably junky tobacco for $20 and I thought that would be cool and I can hang out with my classmates and we can debate politics or whatever we did um well I walked into the pipe store I talked to the guy and because I'm a bit of a gear nut for everything yeah um I walked out having spent all hundred dollars of my money on a fancy pipe if sure. you guys listening are, pi- are pipe smokers probably a hundred dollars is like not nothing but For me, I remember getting about a block away and it hit me. This was a stupid decision and I walked straight back to the store and said, I have to return this. And he was like, oh, no problem. Wow. We can return it for store credit. And I said, well, I'm never going to smoke $100 worth of tobacco. I don't think I would have smoked the the $3 worth of tobacco I got here. Um, And that was a lesson learned. He would not return that that pipe for me. And if you're still in business, tobacco store in Princeton, New Jersey, I I just want to put a little bit of shame on you for <laughs> that decision. For not
1: giving my money um, back. Well, big of you to turn around and go back yeah. and actually confess I did a dumb thing.
0: Well, this happens, and they talk about this in the book. It happens to most people who are dealing with poverty and scarcity is that the, everybody makes the same dumb decisions. The people who have no slack in the system, it really hurts them. Mm. Um, So I cannot claim to be really hurt by that decision. But I did not go out to eat with my buddies for like a month after that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of sucked and I actually had to trade off. Um, I think that, you know, if you define slack as room to fail, that's why it's not so stressful for somebody who has a bunch of extra. Uh, I thought about... (laughs) when we moved out to Utah, I was rock climbing all the time. It was my obsession of the moment when we moved out here and I would go climb with people every, every morning before work. And the cool thing to do when you were a 27 year old childless Yahoo was to show how much mastery you had over a climb by climbing occasionally with no rope. Right. Um, and this is incredibly stupid because some of the best climbers in the world have fallen to their deaths on very easy climbs when something breaks. So I am confessing this to our audience. Yeah. I'm not bragging yeah. Don't that this do was this was a good idea. Yeah, But the point is, I could climb a pretty hard rock climb. They grade them. And I could climb something that was, you know, towards the top of what folks in my crew were able to do um, when I had a rope on. And I could just fully concentrate, and if I fall, no big deal, I'll get caught. When I was doing something that would have been easy enough for my daughter to climb uh, now, it felt tremendously difficult when I knew that if you slip, you die. And Um, anxiety-inducing, I'm sure. And that's kind of how people dealing with poverty feel about all financial decisions. Like, these aren't hard decisions, but if I screw it up, I die. Uh, in a sense. So, yeah, that's, that's That's kind of what poverty, that's kind of what poverty feels like. And the, I think when we think of it that way, it helps us understand all that stuff we were talking about, the, the bandwidth tax, the fact that of course you can't think like you would objectively think in a low stress environment. If you are knowing the wrong decision here, uh, the, the authors actually, you'll enjoy that. They referred to Bruce Bowen, who uh, of course San Antonio Spurs San Antonio Spurs one of the best three point shooters in the league uh, during the 2002 2003 He's one
1: of the season. original guys who,
0: for whom they coined the term 3 and D Right so he shot 44% from the three point line and for our non basketball fans that is a lot farther away and usually uh, a much more heavily guarded shot than the free throw which uh, is the easiest shot from the field in basketball, probably. And he shot 40% that season from the free throw line. Crazy. So it's really just the, the noise created by pressure and high consequences of missing. And I guarantee you, once Bruce started that season out shooting... 50% and everybody was kind of looking at him like what what's happening here yeah every shot after that started to feel like if you screw this up you're really going to be made fun of on on sports center the next day yeah we talked a little bit about payday loans it's kind of interesting i won't go into all of it a 1997 study found that five percent of the annual income of the poor is spent on servicing debt late fees and reconnections for late payments Um, I can personally tell you that I have been a landlord with tenants who were dealing with poverty. I will just never forget. I would tell my tenants every week, if you will move out, I will forgive all of the debt that you owe. You just have to leave and find a new place and it's forgiven. And they would never, they would never leave. And so what they would do is cough up massive late fees that were specified in our contract. Yeah. Cause I said, if you stay, you have to abide by the contract, but let me help you find a place you can afford. Right. Um, and it was always, no, we're going to sell a couple old vehicles and get you your money. Yep. It's interesting that the, the poor use about 10 distinct financial instruments on average. Um, we did an episode with my friend Murray, if you think back, and he's a guy who kind of evolved in the way he was thinking about cars and you'd have to just go back and listen to, to the episode to hear his story. But he talks about getting stuck in a trap of leveraging this debt against another debt and trading these two cars for another one. And then looking up and going, I have more debt than I started with now. And that's just part of the story in poverty is that there's usually a lot of complexity that, um, people who are dealing with poverty and scarcity and kind of that snowball encounter, um, I I remember being at lunch with a guy who I thought, well, this guy's got it together. He's he's got a big wig job. Um and we ate at lunch and I was thinking this place is kind of expensive. I had to spend $17 on lunch. <laughs> and he he sat across from me just racking up a bill of we were eating sushi and the bill was like $53 for his meal. Right. Um and I thought, wow, they must be doing well. And then he proceeded to scroll through his phone and say, well, let me let me figure out which credit card I need to use because most of them are maxed <gasps> out right now. And it was just like, wow, there's there's so much complexity that you've layered on to, wow. to try to persist. Um, and the $53 sushi dinner was exactly what you were describing earlier. Let me just forget about all that and just feel good for a moment. Yep. I'll do that with food. Yep. So the book, like I said, doesn't really give a, and so here is what we should do. Um, but it does say two things that I wanted to end with um, before kind of just leaving you guys with a bunch of depressing data. Um, and I'm going to read this paragraph because I think it it really wraps up the, the steps that need to be taken. And it says, getting out of a scarcity trap first requires formulating a plan. Something that's the scarcity mindset does not easily accommodate. Making a plan is important, but not urgent. And it's exactly the sort of thing that tunneling leads us to neglect. Planning requires stepping back, yet juggling keeps us locked into the current situation. Focusing on the ball that's about to drop makes it terribly difficult to see the big picture. You would love to stop playing catch up, but you have too much to do to figure out how. So right now you must make your rent payment. Right now you must meet the project deadline long-term planning clearly falls outside of that tunnel. And that's why you and I think there's a life to be given in helping people step outside of themselves, whether or not they're dealing with, with like this type of pressing scarcity. We all have finite resources. Even those of us who are stewarding giant piles of wealth, there's still some finiteness to it. Um, And, it's helpful to step back and intentionally pause, back up, and plan. Um, I think that has implications for our weekly rhythms, for taking a time to stop everything and just breathe. Um, I think about the way that you guys start your Shabbat with kind of occasionally a cacophony of, here's everything we have to do, da, 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 and yeah. it gets louder and louder, and then whew, the candle gets lit and it's time to start Shabbat. Yes. Um so um there's value to stopping and there's the the long-term solution to this is planning. Um we're out of time to go into it, but there's fantastic stories in the book about um vendors in markets in third-world countries and how if they could just plan a little bit, they would exit the cycle of having to borrow money every mm. single day for what they do. Um so planning is is a valuable but almost impossible to do step in exiting the scarcity trap.
1: Well, you know that I'm I'm just thinking of there's so many places in all of our lives where we feel we're on some kind of hamster wheel and we will we just can't get out of it. I mean I know people who feel that they have to check in with social media every couple of hours and they have to scroll until they get back to the last place that they left off. Like I have a responsibility internally to keep up with every single post of anybody that I'm vaguely connected to. And that is a hamster wheel. If ever there was one, one I'm famous for, not feeling right and, unless the the my emails are all dealt with and i just can't i just can't leave some you know that are bolded they got to all get out of do the you, bold do you use folders no i've never used folders
0: oh man this is probably not good for your mental health but i have gotten to the point where now it's not enough just to have them all <laughs> unbolded I have to open my Gmail and there's nothing at all there. Right. Okay. So I filed them all into yes. different folders. I know
1: people like you where for me, I'm just getting comfortable with, okay, that, that's, that's not important enough. I'm not going to just, I'm just not going to deal with that. But I, because of that kind of paralysis and that, think of the hamster wheel of urgent things, Got to, Oh, it's so urgent. Got to do this. and, Then I look around my desk and go, why wouldn't I take 10 minutes and straighten up this desk and deal with these papers could be dealt with if I would just, you know, I put papers on my desk. If I just take that note, the reason it's on my desk is because I want to put a note into my computer, then I can, they're going to have it there forever and get rid of this paper and my desk or my closet can start looking cluttered because I have this feeling of the urgent, urgent, urgent And so that's something that I hope that people can take away from this is if you live in the endless hamster wheel of dealing with the urgent and never pull back to go into a big picture planning mode. And really, that's one of the mental benefits, I have to say, of of taking time out to spend with the Lord. Kind of like what you're saying about the Shabbat, which is, of course, there's all these demands on all of our lives, We can't meet the demand for everything in our life. You can't do all the things that you could do in your life. You should see the weeds in my front yard right now. You just can't do all the things that you have to, that you can do in your world. Um, So we have to pull back and we have to get some perspective. We have to prioritize and make some good decisions without being in the moment. So The planning thing that you're describing, I mean, that is so central to what we want for families is that you spend time. I want a husband and a wife to spend time weekly together talking about what's happening in their worlds, what's happening with the children, what's happening with their finances, what's happening with their time resources to make plans where they're not digging in the actual stuff all of the time and trying to make a decision while you're carting kids around. That's not the best time to make decision. Pull away and go, what should we be doing for our our, our time off that's coming up in the next three months or whatever? Similarly, right. we beg people to, to protect time For summits with with couples, for them to go away for a weekend and get a 30,000 foot view of their marriage, of their home, of their children, and to actually decide why are we doing what we're doing? Do we need to make any adjustments? And the the kind of anxiety hamster wheel that you're describing for for those who are trapped in with a I'm going to say a spirit of poverty We'll never let them t- take that time away. So if 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 our listeners hear anything from the book Scarcity, I, I want you to to think I I, I got a plan. I got I have protect the time to plan, and come up with strategies.
0: Yeah, saying saying I don't have time to go on a summit because I've got little kids right now is not different than saying I'm too poor to buy health insurance. Yeah, it's. A very short-term kind of view. Um, I wanted to wrap it up as I promised I would um, with Proverbs six. Excellent. And you know, one of the big points uh, of the book is it's trying to sort of make make recommendations on on how to approach this problem. Is that we all, during times of abundance, uh, waste time or money. So you know this if you've been in school that it's you have four weeks to turn in a paper. It's a rare student who is working on that paper on day one and saying, well, if I just work 30 minutes a day, I will have the paper done with no stress. Yeah. Um, you've told us stories, Stephen, of physically sprinting across Texas A&M's <laughs> campus yes. to get a, a paper. True. Term. Um, But... They talk about this with regard to farmers and how there's just a pattern that is observable in farmers who are dealing with scarcity, that they are very wealthy right after the harvest and they don't have a lot of work to do. And There's actually a lot of things they could be doing that would make their lives very even keel. Uh, I could do a lot of the work now that I need, I'm going to need to do for the next crop, um but by and large those farmers end up feeling extremely poor and stressed right before the next harvest because they um waste time and money um i find that this happens to me after i finish a big project for somebody i might say well i've got i've got a couple weeks before i've got to really turn on turn on the heat and do this again and before you know it you're back in the same situation so Proverbs 6 has something to say um, about this, and uh, it's the verse we talked about before. Uh, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. And we wrote a whole series on the blog called Consider the Ant, and I think that this really is the the biblical prescription for cycles of poverty, which is that um, it's so important when there is plenty to store provisions for summer, because we're not guaranteed at all that there's going to be um, manna from heaven in all seasons. You might be getting that provision now um, for later, and I think this is a good admonition to kind of say, let's not do the thing where we say we got a we got a hundred dollar bill in our pockets now, so I guess we're uh, the whole neighborhood's going to get some crown royal tonight, right? Uh, it's it, that's that's not what the Bible prescribes.
1: That's great. I got a little I got a recommendation here. Uh, more more book recommendations if you want to read stories of a guy who had this, who had the right kind of attitude. He had a proverb six diligence mindset. I want to, I want to recommend a couple of, uh, of, of books for you out of a series. There's a guy named Ralph Moody, um, who wrote a series of books about his life. It's called the little britches book series. Now the whole book series is worth reading. Um, but there are a couple of these books that are specifically about him in I'm talking about hard times in American history. The, the book said about 1910. Um, they're, they're around 1910 and i I'm going to, okay. There's a book called man of the family and in man of the family, you won't believe this is a, this is an 11 year old kid whose father died And you won't believe the ingenious things this kid comes up with to make money for his family. Um, Talk about diligence. It's called Man of the Family. There's another one called Mary Emma in Company later, later in the series when he's grown up a little bit. And his mother has it in mind. I'm going to create a laundry business and we're going to compete with the best laundry businesses in town. And you see their diligence and how they built that into success. And then the one that um, my uh, girls and I are reading right now is called the dry divide. And this is a guy who is, he had no, no dough. He kept starting over with nothing. And you look at what he did in the dry divide. Talk about diligence, ingenuity, talk about um, working while it's still summertime Um, and by the end of the dry divide, he just got so much money. He doesn't know what to do with it all just because of this ethic, which is, um, I see needs, I see opportunities. I'm going to insert myself into the gap. I'm going to be diligent. I'll learn how to master an idea. Anyways, they're great. It's the little britches book series by Ralph Moody. I read them with my girls. We love, we love him. Love it's. it's a Christian family. It's not written to teach biblical values. It's just his life story, but there will be, you know, there might be a Bible verse mentioned in every book. Anyways, great stuff.
0: Awesome. Well, that was a lot for a book review. I hope that we made it to the end with a few listeners <laughs> still hanging on.
1: That's right. Thanks for your time, everybody. We'll, we'll be back uh, next week, and we'll talk some more about poverty. Goodbye.